Has the Bible been corrupted over time? This is a common objection. It is a major belief of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, as well as many Muslims. You'll hear this from New Age gurus like Deepak Chopra, as well as many everyday skeptics and atheists and agnostics on Twitter, or those people in your life that you know that are not believers. Has the Bible been corrupted over time? This is what we're talking about today. This is a special presentation of the Think Institute and Worldview Legacy. Worldview Legacy is the show that helps Christian guys who aren't pastors to become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedecase. I am a former pastor and a Bible teacher who used to defend my faith the completely wrong way. Then God changed my attitude and my approach. And now I help believers to get equipped to share and explain and defend the truth of the Christian message. I'm the president and executive director of a ministry called the Think Institute. So what do people think about the Bible being corrupted? If you ask the question, has the Bible been corrupted on social media, like Twitter, for example, as I did recently, you're going to get replies like this. So someone named Janice Diaz wrote, for starters, how about the missing books of the Bible? It was corrupted so the Catholic Church could control the masses and then treated the people like dirt, disgusting, fake, religious, power-hungry pigs. And then she followed this with a long list of supposedly missing books from the Bible. And then she said, they were already in it and then were removed. And then all the rest changed by the church. Evil. Wow. That would be evil if that were the case. We're going to talk about that tonight. I also got this comment from Tower Guy John on Twitter. Here's what he said. Any work that has been subjected to selective editing and numerous translations is 100% going to differ from whatever is considered the original. Wow. Okay. Well, that's quite a claim. Is that true? Is Tower Guy John correct? Is Janice correct? Really, what Tower Guy John and Janice and many others highlight is, is the fact that this objection really takes two forms. There are two forms of this objection. Form number one is that the Bible was corrupted through copying, the process of rewriting and translating the Bible into other languages and making copies of it by hand. The other form this argument takes is that the Bible was corrupted through composition, the process of selecting which books would make it in and which books would be excluded. You heard really both of those in those objections, didn't you? So was the Bible corrupted through copying? Was it corrupted through composition? Have you ever wondered that? How ready do you feel right now to answer this challenge? Knowing how to answer this challenge is going to help you to become the worldview leader that your family and your church need you to be. People are asking this question, look, your kids, your wife, or if you're a woman, your husband, and you must know how to handle this objection, both in order to clear away objections from the people that you're sharing your faith with, that you're evangelizing. And also, it's important to know this for yourself. After all, since the Bible is God's word, it should stand up to scrutiny, right? The good news is it does. Now, if you want to go deeper, if you find this thought-provoking, what you're about to listen to, and you want to have more confidence answering this objection and other challenges, then I want to tell you about our free community. 
This is the group where you can join with 775 others who are on the exact same that you're on towards building a legacy for their families. You're going to get solid answers to questions. You're going to be able to answer them from the Bible. You're going to have healthy conversation that are going to, that's going to sharpen your positions and you're going to get stuff to help you grasp the tools of theology and philosophy in practical terms so that you can pass on the faith to the younger generation. This is a fellowship of people who are connected together to share ideas and skills and interests and give and get practical help. And I'm going to tell you more about how you can join this free community at the end. Now, the questions we're going to answer today are this. Why does the question of biblical integrity matter? Why does this question matter? What's the problem with undermining the Bible? What is the Bible's testimony about itself, and why does that matter? Has the Bible been corrupted in its composition? Like, we're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea, how the books were chosen, and has the Bible been altered through copying? We're going to talk about the manuscript tradition, and we'll talk about how accurate the Old Testament and the New Testament are today based on what the originals were, and can we even know that? Does it matter that we don't have the original manuscripts? Let's go ahead and jump right in. All right, let's start with this. Why does the integrity of the Bible matter? Think about that. How would you answer that? Why does the integrity of the Bible matter? Some might say that the question really doesn't matter, but it does. Saying that it doesn't matter is a coward's way out. This is something that you would say if you didn't believe the Bible could really stand up to scrutiny. The question of the integrity of the Bible matters because the gospel matters. The gospel is the central message of the Bible. If the Bible could have been corrupted, then we wouldn't be able to trust the gospel. And the gospel is the only hope for mankind. Our greatest problem is sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only remedy for sin. Jesus Christ dying for sinners like you and me, being buried, being raised on the third day, ascended to heaven, and now he forgives anyone who repents and trusts in him. Furthermore, Jesus staked his own reputation on the integrity of the Bible. Jesus said that the scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. So if we can't trust the Bible, then we can't trust Jesus. And finally, there are implications for our evangelism. How are we going to tell others to trust in the central message of a book that we ourselves can't trust? The integrity of the Bible truly matters. Whether it's been corrupted or not, truly matters. Now, what is the danger of undermining the Bible? Because when someone is trying to question the Bible, James R. White has pointed out something really important. When people question the integrity of the Bible, they are often trying to substitute something else in its place. There's always some other non-biblical or sub-biblical authority at work. Now, this might be the works of Joseph Smith, it might be the Quran. It might be their own supposedly autonomous wisdom. But there's always something. If a person's final authority is not Scripture, then they have some other authority at work. And that authority never, ever stands up to the same scrutiny that they would subject the Bible to. James White talks about this in his book, Scripture Alone, right around page 153. So remember this when you are defending the integrity and purity of the Bible. What is the alternative? If it's not Scripture, then what? If the questioner has another alternative, let me just say this. The questioner is not neutral. The person raising the objection is not neutral, and neither are you. Everyone has some final authority to which they appeal. Now, for Christians, that foundation, the foundation of our worldview, is the Bible itself. So let's turn our attention 
to what the Bible says about itself. What does the Bible say about itself? The Bible's own testimony about itself is important. Here's why. As Christians, the truth of the Bible is one of our most basic beliefs. It's how we make sense of the whole world. So if the Bible says that it's going to keep its integrity and not become corrupted, then that is a belief that we must believe in order to remain consistent Christians. If the Bible is our foundation, then it makes sense that we should believe what the Bible says, including what the Bible says about itself. Now, furthermore, the Bible must be true in order for the world itself to make sense, for us to be able to make sense of the world. If the Bible's been corrupted, we can't make sense of the world. Let me explain. To even answer the question, has the Bible been corrupted? We must first have a few assumptions or presuppositions in place. We must be able to make sense of the world. The world needs to be the kind of place where evidence is a real thing, where evidence is a meaningful concept. There, are, there must be certain things that must be true in order for us to make sense of the world. There must be certain rules in place that allow us to make sense of our experience. These things must be true. Laws of logic must be real. Laws of mathematics must be real. Laws of morality must be real. They must be true and unchanging. Furthermore, our minds must be aimed at truth and capable of knowing truth. You ever think about that? Our minds must be designed to seek after truth. The Bible is the only cohesive, coherent, cogent worldview in which everything that needs to be there for the world to make sense all come together. It wouldn't really make sense to seek truth if you didn't think the world was the kind of place where we could know true things or that our minds weren't aimed at truth and we didn't have truth-seeking faculties that could figure these things out. According to the biblical worldview, the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics are all grounded in the mind of God. According to the Bible, God has created our minds capable of seeking and knowing true things. And he has created the world to be the kind of place where truth is revealed. Now, that means that the biblical worldview is necessary in order to make sense of the world. And all these teachings, these are found in the Bible, and they are embedded in passages that all fit together into one coherent narrative. That narrative, let me tell you this, if you didn't know this, the narrative of the Bible all points in one direction. It points towards Jesus Christ. All of it, the whole Bible, points towards Jesus Christ. So if you take the biblical worldview, and again, you really have to if you want to make sense of the world, it will inevitably lead you to Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus say about Scripture? I said it before, but Jesus said that Scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. Jesus commissioned his apostles to go and write more Scripture. We read about this in John 16, 13. He says, the Holy Spirit would guide his apostles into all truth and would cause them to remember everything that he said. That is Jesus authorizing the writing of the New Testament, the epistles and the Gospels. So we could list passage after passage after passage in Scripture indicating that the Bible cannot be corrupted. You can go to Matthew 24, 35, Matthew 5, 18, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, Psalm 119, 89, Isaiah 40, verse 8, Psalm 119, 160, 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, Luke 21, 33, and Mark 13, 31. All of these verses indicate that the Bible asserts that the Bible cannot be corrupted, that Scripture cannot be corrupted. To question the Bible, you must already presuppose that it is true. 
The Bible says the scripture cannot be corrupted. That same Bible presents the only worldview that makes sense of the world. And so, since we must make sense of the world in order to even investigate whether or not the Bible has been corrupted, that means that in order to examine the Bible, we must already presuppose it to be true. And if it's true and it says it can't be corrupted, then it can't be corrupted. Now, I've just made a presuppositional case, is what we would call this, for the integrity of the Bible. But I'm guessing that's probably not why you're here. <laughs> I'm guessing you're probably here to hear some evidence, answers from history, things like that. So let's go ahead and get into that. We're going to start by looking at the composition of Scripture or the canon of Scripture. And we're going to ask this question, has the canon been corrupted in its composition? Think about that. How would you answer that? All right. When we're talking about the composition of the Bible, we're not talking about how it is written on the page, okay? The books of the Bible, as they're originally written, they would have looked very foreign to us. There were no chapters, there were no verse numbers. We're not talking about the addition of chapters and verse numbers and things like that, section headings. That's not corruption. That doesn't count. What we're talking about is the canon. What is the canon? Canon means the officially accepted list of books. Now, James White calls the canon an artifact of revelation. In other words, Although God didn't give us a list of books that are in the canon, the list of books itself is an artifact. It's a result of the books that God has breathed out, that God has inspired, even though I don't like the term inspired. But 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. And the composition of the Bible is a target for those who want to undermine the Bible and substitute another authority in its place. People, are, people will accuse various councils of conspiring together to choose books that gave them more power and to exclude any books that they didn't like. Have you heard about this? The whole thing is supposed to have been very sinister, very conspiratorial. But how were the books of the Bible actually chosen? How were they actually chosen, though? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how the books of the Bible actually made it into the canon as we have it today. We're going to start with the Old Testament. Why can we trust the Old Testament canon? In their book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh and Sean McDowell note that the biblical scholar named David Eckwert has explained that no human authority and no council of rabbis ever made an Old Testament book authoritative. These books were inspired by God and had the stamp of authority on them from the beginning. Through long usage in the Jewish community, their authority was recognized, and in due time, they were added to the collection of canonical books. So the Old Testament is historically divided up into three divisions. Do you know what those three divisions are? Drop a comment. Let me know if you know what those are. Okay, I'm going to tell you. They are the Torah, or the law, or instruction, the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch. The Torah, the Nevi'im, which means prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings. You have all three of these divisions in the of the Old Testament cited in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as in the writings of Philo, who wrote during the life of Christ, and Josephus, writing in the late first century. So these traditions of the Old Testament canon, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, go back way, way, way back, thousands of years. How were these books chosen or recognized? 
the McDowells give several tests that were applied in order to determine if a book belonged in the canon. Actually, five tests. I'll tell you what they are. One, was it written by a prophet of God? Two, was the author authenticated by acts of God, acts of power, what we would call miracles? Three, was the book's message about God true? Four, did it come with the power of God? Five, was it accepted by the people of God? So the books of the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, which if you shorten that, we call it the Tanakh or the Old Testament. These books were all recognized as having met that criteria. And yes, in the original Hebrew Bible, they were arranged differently than how they are now in our Bibles today, but the content was exactly the same. Now, you may have heard about the Council of Jamnia. Let me know if you've heard of the Council of Jamnia. Sometimes people will say that the Council of Jamnia, which was a rabbinical council, council of rabbis that took place around 90 AD, that council determined which books would be in the Old Testament. Again, very conspiratorial. But that's not actually the case. Rather, the Council of Jamnia answered questions about whether books that were already in the canon could stay in the canon. These books included Esther, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Ezekiel. And here's the thing. Jamnia was not really a binding council. It was more informal and just recognizing books that had already been recognized as opposed to including new books in the canon or anything like that. Now, what are we to make about books like Enoch or the Apocrypha? Were these inspired writings? talk about those very, very briefly. The Apocrypha and other books like First Enoch are not recognized as being God-breathed. The Apocrypha refers to books that are written between the Old and New Testaments in that 400-year period. Today, they are included in Roman Catholic Bibles, as well as Eastern Orthodox Bibles, but they are excluded from Protestant Bibles. And spoiler alert, no surprise, I think that the Protestants got this one right. In his excellent book called Scripture Alone, James White lays out the following points about the Apocrypha. The writers of the Apocryphal books don't seem to have considered their own books to be Scripture. For example, in 1 Maccabees, which is one of the Apocryphal books, it is indicated that no, or that prophecy had actually ended. So 1 Maccabees 4, 46, 9, 27, and 14, 41 indicate this. Well, if there's no prophecy, then there's no scripture. Furthermore, in the New Testament, when the scripture is referred to, the Old Testament scripture is referred to, it's referred to as the law and the prophets, or Jesus will talk about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Psalms is shorthand for the writings, the law, that's the Torah, and the prophets, that's the Ketuvim. So you've got the whole Tanakh. So when the Old Testament, when the New Testament writers refer to the scripture, they, they exclude the Apocrypha. They didn't seem to include them as uh, in the canon. And what's more, the Apocrypha actually contains historical errors. For example, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned as being in Nineveh and over the Assyrians. Not true. Nebuchadnezzar was in Babylon. And there are people who try to rationalize that. But quite frankly, I think that there's just that's just more of an ideological bias. Dr. White has much more good information about the Apocrypha in his book. I highly recommend that you check it out. That's not really the purpose of this webinar, but I wanted to make sure that I answered that, and I think that we can put that to bed for now. If you do have a question, drop it in the comments. Now, let's look at the New Testament canon, because I know this is really where you want to get to. Let's talk about 
Why can we trust the New Testament canon? All right, what are your thoughts on this? Why do you trust the New Testament canon if you do? Similar to the Old Testament, there were tests for which books would be recognized in the New Testament canon. First of all, it had to be apostolic. It could have been written by an apostle, or it could have been written by an associate of apostle. For example, Matthew was an apostle. Mark was not an apostle, but it's recognized and well attested that he learned from Peter. And so the Markan gospel, the gospel according to Mark, has a lot of Petrine qualities to it, if you will. A lot of it is written from Peter's perspective. Luke was not an apostle, but Luke wrote the gospel, the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote Acts. And we know from his introduction that he interviewed eyewitnesses, apostolic eyewitnesses, and we know from Acts that he was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. So the book of Acts and the book of Luke are apostolic. And these books did have to be authentic. Have you ever noticed when he's wrapping up one of his letters, will sometimes say, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. See what large letters I use. Apparently, Paul had huge handwriting. Some of you can relate. Why did Paul do that? He wanted to make sure that they knew that it was really Paul writing the letter. The letter had to be authentic for it to count as Scripture. And Paul knew there were some counterfeits out there, and Paul wanted to make sure they could trust that letter was coming from him. It was apostolic. So that's the first test. It had to be apostolic. Second test, what was that? It had to be universally recognized by the church. Sometimes this took time for the church to recognize it. There were books that were questioned, but the approval process was not a top-down one where some council got together and said, listen, all you rubes and plebes, this is the scripture, this is the canon, we don't care if you like it or not. No, the process was bottom-up. It was the people of God together meeting in local congregations collectively together, but in individual congregations who authenticated the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writings of Scripture. So it was a bottom-up process, not top-down. That's very important. So it had to be apostolic. It had to be universally recognized. Thirdly, its message had to be in line with the gospel. The message had to be consistent. The teachings of each book had to be consistent with what God had previously revealed. The church is well within her bounds to say, that doesn't sound like God. God doesn't contradict himself. But we also know that these books that came along, we're going to talk about a few of them in a second. They weren't apostolic. They weren't universally recognized by the church. So they didn't meet the other criteria. But it's not beyond the pale or inappropriate to say that the books that are going to be recognized as scripture need to be consistent. The only reason you'd have a problem with that really is if you assume that God's not behind the process in the first place. You say, well, God didn't inspire any of the Bible books, and so therefore, you know, they're just picking and choosing. If you just arbitrarily start with the assumption that God is not behind this process because whatever, God doesn't exist, look, you've got bigger problems. If you don't believe God exists, we're going right back to point number one. You can't make sense of the world. I don't want to get back into that, but nevertheless, suffice it to say, the books had to be consistent. Now, this process did take time, but the canon had to be recognized by 303 AD. Why? Because that was the year that the most intense period of persecution started. There was a 10-year period right at the end 
before Constantine, before the Edict of, of Toleration, and the different edicts that made Christianity not only tolerated, but the official religion of the Roman Empire, there was an intense period of persecution. Now, during that period, 303 to 313, Roman officials would force Christians to give up, to surrender their copies of the Bible, of the scriptures. The alternative was that they died. Hear me on this. They had to give up the Bible or else die. And the Christians needed to know that the Bibles that they were preserving, not giving up, possibly even dying for, were not just religious books. They were actually sacred books. They were holy books. They were inspired. They were breathed out by God. So by 303, the canon had to be recognized. Did you know that? But it's not like the church had no idea what books belonged in the canon, and then all of a sudden in 303, they all just decided. No, there were these great moments of recognition prior to that, and we have records of that. There were great moments afterwards as well. Okay, so for example, in 115 AD, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, and uh, okay, so Polycarp referred to the Old Testament and the New Testament as scriptures. Clement of Alexandria did that in 200 AD. And Justin Martyr referred to the Gospels as scripture in 100, somewhere between 100 to 165 AD. Irenaeus recognized the Gospels. Irenaeus was one step down from Polycarp. So you've got John the Apostle, Polycarp, and then Irenaeus. Irenaeus recognized the Gospels and Acts and many of the Pauline epistles as scripture. And then Origen, writing in the mid-third century, appeared to have given a complete list of the New Testament books that is nearly the same, almost exactly the same, as the 27-book canon that we have in our Bibles today. So he affirmed, Origen affirmed the four Gospels, Acts, the 13 epistles of Paul plus Hebrews, which he attributed to Paul, First Peter, and I think Second Peter, James, Jude, First, Second, and Third John, and Revelation. So those books should sound familiar to you. That's what we have in our Bibles today. And then by 367 AD, Athanasius wrote up a list of New Testament books that is identical to our canon today. So it's not as if the canon just appeared in the fourth century. These books were recognized by the church along the way, but they had to be solidified and written down and really authenticated by the early 300s because that is when the persecution started. So, now we need to ask the question that I know you want to know. Are there books missing from the Bible? And some of you are jumping out of your seats right now because you cannot wait to hear me address this. And I know this is going to satisfy some of you and not satisfy others. I'm okay with that. Look, there were several pseudopigraphal books. Pseudopigraphal means falsely attributed that were never recognized by the Orthodox Fathers in any canons or any councils. Evidence that the Vans of Verdict talks about this on page 32. If you have that book, go check it out. Now, these books are heretical in nature. These books include the so-called Gospel of Thomas, the so-called Gospel of the Ebionites, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Hebrews, the Gospel of Egyptians, the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Judas. Now, I'm not talking about the book of Hebrews that's in the Bible. I'm not talking about First and Second Peter. These are separate books. You've probably heard of the Gospel of Thomas. A lot of people have. Jordan Peterson talks about the Gospel of Thomas. It's not 
scripture and it contains a lot of heretical teachings. It's not really a gospel either. It has none of the characteristics of what a gospel has, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, various other writings were considered beneficial by the early church, but non-canonical. Let me give you some examples. Do you know what they are? How about the epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas? It was written by someone claiming to be Barnabas, but not really him. Then we've got the epistle to the Corinthians, the shepherd of Hermas. That's a big one people mention. The Didache. I love the Didache. If you've ever read it, it's amazing. Incredible book. The epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, the seven epistles of Ignatius, the apocalypse of Peter, the second epistle of Clement, the epistle to the Laodiceans, and the gospel according to the Hebrews, which I'll be honest with you, I don't know if that's the same gospel of Hebrews that I mentioned earlier. I'm not sure. I don't know if there were two or just one. I might have my data crossed on that. You can let me know. But these books were not included in the original canon for four reasons. One, none of them enjoyed any more than a temporary or local recognition. Point number one, none of them enjoyed any more than a temporary or local recognition. Point number two, most of them did not ever have anything, most of them never had anything more than a semi-canonical status, meaning they would be appended to the back of various manuscripts, included as an appendix, things like that, but they weren't considered canon. No, number three, no major canon or church council included them as inspired books of the New Testament. That's important. That matters. That They didn't have that universal acceptance. And then point number four, the limited acceptance enjoyed by most of these books is attributable. Why, why do they enjoy any acceptance? Here's why. They attached themselves to references in the canonical books. Okay, so, for example, you've got this epistle to the Laodiceans. That sounds like Colossians 4.16, which mentions an epistle to the Laodiceans. But it didn't meet the criteria of being included in Scripture. Now, once these issues were actually clarified, there was little doubt that the books did not belong in the canon. So the canon, here's the point, the collection of books that function as the rule of Scripture, as the rule for faith and practice for the Christian, was not imposed from the top down against the will of the lay people, people like you and me. Rather, the canon consists of books that met the criteria that authenticated them as having been breathed out by God. God's people trusted the Spirit of God to do His work, and the Spirit of God empowered the people of God to recognize that work. It was a beautiful harmony and synergy between God and man. It really is a beautiful thing. Now, we need to talk about Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman has raised many, many objections against the reliability and trustworthiness and integrity of the scriptures. If you don't know who Bart Ehrman is, he is a New Testament scholar. He claims to have been a former Christian. He is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. He is a self-proclaimed happy agnostic today. He, is, he no longer considers himself a Christian. And he is sort of the go-to skeptic, the go-to biblical scholar for those who want to question or challenge or even overthrow the reliability of the Bible. Now, Bart Ehrman claims that at the time of the early church, the Council of Nicaea, there were, quote, multiple theologies that were competing for orthodoxy within the early church. 
the views that the Orthodox deemed heretical in the later centuries existed side by side with the Orthodox view, which eventually won allegiance at Nicaea. Here's Ehrman's position in his own words, in his own terms. Some Christians maintained that there was only one God. Others argued that there were two gods and that the God of the Old Testament was not the same as the God of Jesus. Yet others argued that there were 12 gods or 36 gods or even 365 gods. How could someone with those views be even be Christian? Why didn't they simply read their New Testament and see that they were wrong? The answer, of course, is that the New Testament did not yet exist. To be sure, all the books that were later collected and placed in the New Testament and deemed then to be Holy Scripture were in existence, but so were lots of other books, other gospels, epistles, and apocalypses, for example, all of them claiming to be written by the apostles of Jesus and claiming to represent the true view of the faith. What we think of as the 27 books of the New Testament emerged out of those conflicts, and it was the side that won the debates over what to believe that decided which books were to be included in the canon of Scripture. Okay, end quote. That is what Bart Ehrman says. What is the response to this? Yes, there was diversity in the 3rd and 4th centuries among those who claimed to be Christians. However, that is not reflective of the situation in the actual first century, so those first believers. And Daryl Bach has pointed out that other than a group called the Ebionites, now they accepted Jesus but questioned his deity, there is no evidence of groups like the Gnostics and the Marcionites in the first century. That's where these Gnostic gospels are coming from, these really heretical groups. Instead, what we have is a true timeline that traces Orthodox Christology and belief straight through from the early writings of gospels, acts, epistles, apocalypse in the New Testament, straight on through the end of the first century and into the second so as the apostles died, and later on as the apostolic fathers died, and the church moved into the third century, these teachings were passed on in a straight line right through to the fourth century. When orthodoxy was settled, we just talked about that in 303, and solidified. Now, here is an important and valid consideration. Let's say that there were competing groups, all calling themselves true Christianity in the fourth century. So what? Orthodoxy does not depend on popular vote. Orthodox Christianity is derived from Scripture, from the authentic teachings, which can be traced back to the apostles themselves. So by the time you get to Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, that council did not suppress any authentic forms of Christianity. Christianity was not this multifarious, diverse religion or collection of religions with a spectrum of views in the first century when the apostles were alive. And Nicaea was not a conspiracy to secure power for the powerful. Instead, it was a genuine council that authenticated and recognized the books that had been established, the doctrines and teachings that had been established and traced back to the apostles. So why do I bring all this up? Because I thought we were going to talk about textual criticism. Because the way that we authenticate the teachings that were recognized as scriptural, as orthodox, is we can go back and we can trace these teachings through the manuscripts that we have over the years. Let's turn our attention to the actual process of copying the scriptures 
through the centuries. Now, this is where we're going to get into some really super encouraging stuff. If you've ever done any looking into the can the textual criticism that is out there, that's the word I'm looking for. Textual criticism. This is going to be really encouraging. We're going to dive into this. So we truly need to know, has the Bible been altered through the copying process? So let's talk about this. How accurate is the Bible that we have today compared to the original writings? The Old and New Testament as we have them. We're not going to spend a ton of time on the Old Testament because the New Testament is really where the action's at as far as I'm concerned. But it suffices to say this. I, by the, I'm not saying I don't love the Old Testament. Of course I do. It's the Word of God. But it all points forward to the New Testament. Our English translations of the Old Testament are largely derived from what's called the Masoretic Text. Do you know what the Masoretic Text is? The Masoretic Text, or MT, refers to those texts that were created by the Masoretes, a group of Jewish scholars from the 8th century onward who maintained, now we're talking um, AD, not BC, the 8th century AD onward, who maintained ancient traditions and developed new traditions for copying the biblical text for liturgical or scholarly scholarly use. Okay, this is coming from the scholar known as Flint, and this is cited in Evidence that Demands a Verdict, page 100. So does the Masoretic text reflect the original Hebrew text? Because we're talking about a community that was around 800 years after Christ, but we're talking about books that were written hundreds of years before Jesus. So we need to know this. Does the Masoretic text actually reflect the Hebrew text as it was originally written? Yes. Enter the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you probably heard of these, were discovered in 1946, 1947, by Bedouin shepherds in a cave near the ancient site of Qumran. Eventually, in all, 11 caves have been discovered, and they were discovered to contain over 1,000 scrolls, 1,050 scrolls in total. Now, these scrolls go back way further than 800. They date back to 135 AD, all the way back to 250 BC. This is 250 years before Christ. That is amazing. That takes our textual tradition of the Old Testament, it brings them back, brings it back way back, almost a thousand years earlier than what we originally had. And here's the remarkable thing. These scrolls were, they matched up remarkably well to the Masoretic text, which helped to rule out variant readings that developed later. In other words, the Dead Sea Scrolls helped to authenticate the Old Testament as we have it today as being the same as what was originally written. We can trace it back, we can trace back the trajectory, and we can authenticate the Bible that we have today, the Old Testament that we have today. As a result, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls has rightly been called the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Now, there have been other discoveries as well, such as the Ketef Hinnom Scrolls, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but these were actually silver, and they were discovered in 1979, and they feature the Aaronic Benediction from the Book of Numbers. Now, these might be the oldest surviving manuscript that we have of the Bible of any kind. They date back to the late 7th to early 6th century BC. That is incredibly old. And props to the brother on Twitter known as Mason Maestro Ministry. He alerted me 
to the Ketef Hinnom scrolls. I'd never heard of them before. Totally amazing. I did a little looking into them. Seems like it is quite a discovery. Now, let's talk about number of manuscripts. Are you interested in this? The number of manuscripts. This is incredibly important because we're asking how accurate is our New Testament compared to the original. We need to talk about the New Testament. We need to talk about how many manuscripts we actually have because it's important to submit the Bible that we have today to what's called the bibliographic text, bibliographical text. The bibliographical text is an examination of the textual transmission by which documents reach us. I'm quoting from Josh and Sean McDowell again. In other words, since we do not have the original documents, how reliable are the copies that we do have in regard to the number of manuscripts and the time interval between the original and the extant, meaning currently existing, copies? Okay, the McDowell's continue. For any particular work or collection of works, the greater the number and the earlier the dating of the manuscripts, the easier it is to reconstruct a text closer to the original and identify errors or discrepancies in subsequent copies. You know what that means? The more the merrier. The more manuscripts we have, the merrier. The more we have and the older we have, the better. Because what that's going to allow us to do is it's going to, it's going to allow us to trace back variant readings, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, discrepancies in the text. And we're going to be able to see when did they originate, where do they originate, do they belong in the original or not. All of this allows us to prune our text and get back as close as we can to the original text. That's our goal. That's what we want. So the more manuscripts, the better. So how many manuscripts do we actually have? Do you know? Now, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. But we have manuscripts written in several different languages. A manuscript is any document written by hand, manuscript, handwritten. And we have them in Greek, Armenian, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Latin, Syriac, Georgian, and Slavic. Now, all told, get this. There are 23,986 Greek and non-Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Over 5,000 of those are Greek. There are also 42,300 Old Testament manuscripts. Now, some of those Old Testament manuscripts are from the 19th and 20th century. That's pretty recent. They still count, but if we exclude those we still have 17,300 Old Testament manuscripts. Now, that brings the total, if you exclude the 19th and 20th century manuscripts, that brings the total manuscript evidences of the Bible to 41,286. If you include 19th and 20th century copies, that brings us all the way up to 66,286 manuscript evidences of the Old Testament and New Testament. That is astonishing. And now you might be wondering, well, how does that compare with other ancient works? Because the Bible is not the only book that was written thousands of years ago. So how does the Bible compare? Let's just put it this way. No other ancient book or collection of books even comes close in terms of good, solid textual attestation. If you were to stack 
the manuscripts that we have for the average classical writer, the average classical writer, you would have a pile four feet high. That's the average classical writer. So here's a question. If you were to stack the New Testament manuscripts, how high do you think that stack would be? What do you think? Let me know. Average classical writer, four feet. If you stack the New Testament manuscripts, you would have a stack, not five feet, not 10 feet, not 100 feet, not 1,000 feet, 5,280 feet, one mile. You would have a stack, one mile high. And if you added the New Testament manuscripts, it would bring that stack to 2.5 miles high. That is crazy. That is amazing. That should give you so much confidence in the reliability of your Bible and the authenticity and the integrity of your Bible. What are the implications of this? It's if you throw out the New Testament because of textual evidence, you must throw out all other ancient documents from antiquity and all text-based knowledge of the past. We can't know anything about the past if you throw away the Bible. So James White points out that fidelity, integrity is an important concept because errors and authentic readings are passed on in the copies. That makes sense. One scribe writes something, he passes it on. The next scribe makes a copy, and sometimes he will copy an error. And so the more manuscripts we have, it makes it more possible to trace the origins of these different readings and different variants, which we'll talk about in a minute. And it makes any hypothetical tampering with the Bible stick out like a sore thumb. So people say, well, the Bible's been tampered with, the Bible's been manipulated over the years. You know what? We have so many manuscripts. If people are tampering with the Bible, which sometimes scribes would do that, absolutely. Sometimes scribes would do that, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But guess what? We know about it. We know about it. These tamperings, these scribal tamperings cannot hide in the vast and overwhelming shining light of textual criticism of the sheer numbers and piles and piles and piles of manuscripts that we have of the Old and New Testaments. So the more manuscripts, the merrier. Now we need to talk about variants. Because Bart Ehrman has famously said repeatedly over and over and over that there are 400,000 New Testament variants. But when you hear that there are 4,000 New Testament variants, how does that make you feel? I'll tell you what, it makes a lot of people panic. Here's why. How many words are in the New Testament? Do you know? There are only 135,000 words in the New Testament. So that means that there are multiple variants for every New Testament word, every word that's in the Bible or in the New Testament. That's what it sounds like, right? Listen, first of all, let me just reassure you. You do not need to worry about this number, and I'm going to explain why right now. How do we get this number of variants? There are five different kinds of variants. One, blunders, scribal errors. Look, there was no spell check back then. So scribes would make errors. And oftentimes these errors would make the readings nonsensical. Scribes are writing, scribes are copying. They're not supposed to be making things up. So they're not necessarily checking to make sure that it makes sense. Okay, they're writing what they think that they're seeing. And sometimes 
One scribe would write something nonsensical and another scribe would spot it and would correct it. Guess what? That shows up in the textual record. We can see that. Now, now these scribal errors, they don't show up outside of the really intense textual criticism stuff. I know this because Dr. Ed Gravely has pointed this out. He's got a great video on YouTube called, Aren't There 400,000 Variants or Errors in the New Testament? You can check that out. It's from, it's on an account called The Airman Project, E-H-R-M-A-N Project on YouTube. Very, very good to watch that. I highly recommend it to you. So that's one. Number two, non-viable readings. These are readings that occur in a single manuscript or in a single place. And the scribes, somebody introduced something in a particular place in time, in idiosyncrasy. This might be a middle-aged man, a middle-aged manuscript, medieval manuscript that contains a few extra verses, something like that. Okay, these are non-viable. They're non-starters. We know that they're not authentic. So blunders, non-viable readings, three, orthographic variations. What does that mean? It's a fancy word for spelling variations. Look, spelling was not normatized and systematized until much later. You know what really helped with that was the printing press. But we're talking about manuscripts, which by definition are not using printing presses. They're being written by hand. And sometimes one region would spell a word differently than another region. So if you've got a, a scriptorium where one guy is reading out scripture and everybody in the scriptorium is writing it down, you might have someone who's writing the word, let's say if this was happening today, and let's say someone read the word color. Guess what? If you've got an American and a Canadian side by side and they're writing, they're going to be spelling that word differently, aren't they? Because there's no standardized spelling between Canada and the United States. The Canadian's going to put a U in the word and the American's not. And we all know which one is correct. USA, USA. Kidding. Or am I? So spelling variations, these are orthographic variations, not a problem. So we've got blunders, non-viable readings, orthographic variations. Number four, using the definite article with proper nouns. Look, Dan Wallace, who is an amazing scholar, textual critic, textual critical scholar, has said that if you wanted to say a sentence like, Jesus loves John, there are 16 different ways to say that in the original Greek. 16 different ways. And guess what? They all translate to the exact same sentence in English. Jesus loves John. But Greek is an inflected language, and Greek uses the article, the, or actually in Greek it's ha, all the time. And it uses it with proper nouns. So you could say Jesus loves John. You could say the John loves Jesus. Or uh, you could say the Jesus loves the John. You could say, anyway, you can use the article. And oftentimes the Greek writers would use the article. Sometimes they wouldn't. So these, so using the Greek definite article and putting sentences in different word order, different variations, and 99% of textual variants don't even affect the nuance of the language. It's not even like, oh, but if you put it in this order, it changes the way that there's a subtlety to the meaning. No, it doesn't affect it at all. So it's not important whatsoever to the translation of the text. And then you've got number five, the fifth kind of variant, which is major variants. Now, the vast majority of variants are not ma major. Matter of fact, 99% of variants have to do with these minor discrepancies. So that's 99% of variants. And they come about different ways. Scribes will insert things. They'll make mistakes. 
they'll try to make a passage in Mark parallel, a passage in Matthew. Scribes did this. We know this. We can see that they did it. Sometimes they did it purposely, sometimes accidentally. Sometimes they had a passage memorized in Luke and they would, just going off of memory, write the wrong thing accidentally when they're copying Matthew. These are minor variants. These are not major variants. We can tell that they did it. It's very transparent. Now, what about the major variants? You want to know about those? We're talking here about 3,500 to 4,000 variants, which sounds like a lot, but remember there are 400,000 variants. So really we're talking about 1% of variants are major. Of those, only 1,500 to 2,000 could actually impact the meaning of the text. And this is important. It's not trivial. They do need to be examined, James White says. They do have theological significance sometimes. For example, does Acts 20, 28 say the blood of God? Does John 1, 18 say the only begotten son or the only begotten God or the unique God? Does Mark 1, 1 say the son of God? Should that be included? So they are important, and we can use textual criticism to figure out if they are authentic. Only 1,500 to 2,000 could actually impact the meaning of the text. We're talking about a, a tiny minority of variants. The longest variants are 12 verses. These are the woman taken in adultery in John 7, to John 7, 53 to 8, 11, and the longer ending of Mark 16, 9 to 20. And here's the good news. We can deal with these. So for example, the woman caught in adultery. The first manuscript we have of this passage is from the 5th century. This is an unreliable manuscript. It contains idiosyncrasies, readings that aren't found anywhere else. Often this story pops up at different places in John even. Sometimes it pops up in Luke. It's not even in the first three centuries, and the story probably really doesn't belong in the Bible. We can recognize this. Whether you include it or not, we can recognize the fact that it's a problematic passage and no doctrine of theology hinges on the woman caught in adultery. The same is true for the longer ending of Mark. When you look at the whole body of information, the longer ending of Mark is probably not supposed to be there. The language is different. The style is different. It seems like somebody wrote up a summary and tacked it onto the end of Mark. Another example would be 1 John 5, 7. This is sometimes known as the Johannine Kama. Its earliest appearance is in a Latin manuscript in the 6th century. And according to James White, it has no possibility of being original. So be it. Here's the good news. None of this means that the Bible has been corrupted. What we're talking about is through the process of scribes translating and copying, variants were introduced into the text, and we can identify these, we know what they are, and they are not troublesome to us, they do not affect our theology. We don't have anything saying Jesus is not God in any of the original manuscripts or anything like that. We can identify the discrepancies, we can discover problematic passages, and we can get closer to the original text. This is what we want. This is a blessing from God. The integrity of the Bible is astonishing. And yes, we have variants, but we do not have missing pieces. And this is an illustration that James White uses that I love. If you think of the Bible as a puzzle of a thousand pieces, it's not like we have 990 pieces and we're just missing the last 10 and we have to fill in the gaps. Instead, it's more like we have 1,100 pieces or 1,010 pieces and we can tell which pieces do and don't belong by fitting them together. 
So does it matter that we don't have the original manuscripts? Sometimes people will say that it does. No, it doesn't. By God's grace, in the vast majority of cases, vast majority, we can determine which readings were original. And in those instances when we cannot or when we might disagree, the variants do not affect our theology. It does not matter that we don't have the original manuscripts. All right, so to conclude, we have covered a lot of ground, but here's the main takeaway. The Bible is trustworthy. It has not been corrupted. It hasn't been corrupted by composition, and it has not been corrupted by copying. You can trust your Bible. Now, if you're not a Christian, here's where I want to challenge you. The Bible is totally unique among the books of the world. The Bible presents the true story of our origins. It explains what's wrong with the world. It explains our sin against the holy God. It says that all sin earns death. And it says that the one remedy for sin and death that we deserve, you and me both, is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That blood secures for us eternal life. That eternal life only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift from God, not something you can earn, not something that you can get by being good enough. If you could, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But God sent his unique son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. I hope you will repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and believe in him today. If you're already a believer in Jesus, if you trust in him, you can trust his word, and you can feel confident telling others about that word, knowing that the Bible you have today accurately reflects the Bible as it was originally written. It is God's message for the world, and that includes your coworkers, your family, your wife, your kids, and the people in your local area. If you found this entertaining and educational and you've been inspired to learn more, you need to know about the Think Squad community. The Think Squad is the community to help you become the worldview leader that your family and your church need. Now is the time to join. Just open up Facebook and search for Think Squad, T H I N K S Q U A D. Answer the short membership questions. That's all it takes. Thank you for listening to this special presentation from the Think Institute and Worldview Legacy. My name is Joel Sedicase, and I appreciate you listening. I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you. Again, thank you to all of our ministry partners. If you want to partner with this work, go to thethink.institute slash partner. We need your help. We are reaching tens of thousands of people. And man, this ministry is on a roll. I am so blessed to be a part of this ministry that equips Christian laymen to explain, share, and defend their faith. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedicase. It is a production of the Think Institute. We do equip believers to explain, share, and defend their faith, and we are based by God's grace.